Amen. Yes, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Family Church. We're so glad that you decided to come and hang out with us this morning. If you came this morning for part three of our series, I'm in, I hate to disappoint you, but we're actually going to take a one-week hiatus from this series, and we'll pick up there next week with part three of our series that is entitled, I'm Influential, so you won't want to miss that. This morning, however, I want to talk about something that I think resonates with everyone at different times in life, but especially those of you who live in our community. Because frankly, this past week, past three weeks, actually have been uh, particularly challenging as we have lost some uh, members of our community. And even though coping with death and the loss of a loved one or loved ones has always been difficult, I think what's taken place here, especially in the case of uh, this young man, 30 years old, husband, father, three young children, had this horrific accident that left him on death's doorstep for almost three weeks until finally succumbing to death. That's been especially hard. Um, This young man, Aaron Patton, who was a state champion wrestler in high school and fully understood the concept of wrestling and the intensity and the focus and the effort it takes to to be a successful wrestler. You You could almost see those instincts playing out in his life those last three weeks just, you know, as miracle after miracle and he was fighting and fighting and he was in the wrestling match of his life for his life. And just when it seemed like this young man was going to fight his way through and man, against all odds, as miracle after miracle after miracle took place, this young man finally succumbed to death. And honestly, as I shared this at Aaron's funeral, but it wasn't just that he died. It was the way that it played out. That's what made this so hard, so very, very hard for everyone, but especially Aaron's family. So Kyle texted me uh, earlier in the week and suggested the idea of maybe taking a week off from our series to talk about perseverance and hope during hard times. So to establish the context for what the Bible says about what we're going to talk about this morning, how we're to navigate hard, dark, seemingly hopeless circumstances and challenges in life, I want to begin with this question. What do we do when there's nothing more we can do? What do we do when, you know, it is what it is, and, and I hate that statement, but what do we do when it is what it is? We don't particularly like what it is right now, which is exactly why I think many folks in our community are at, especially the Patton family. But there are many others who I'm sure feel the same way, and so into this arena, James, the brother of Jesus, weighs in on how we should navigate hard, difficult situations and circumstances. But I got to warn you, when you read what he says, it's going to be like, what? What? Because, I mean, at face value, what James says we should do really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. In fact, not only does what James say not make what much sense, it seems like such a passive thing. And in ways, it almost seems insensitive. After all, James doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know what you're going through. All right? And yet... Even though he's never heard my story, he's never heard your story, he's still going to give us some advice about how, what we're supposed to do. Really? Are, are you kidding, James? I mean, that's almost on par with when, what G, when Jesus said, uh, wor, uh, don't worry, right? Remember our series on worry? Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. You say, well, wait a minute. Why do you say that? You, you don't even know what I'm going to go through tomorrow. Oh, he doesn't? What James is going to tell us sort of falls into the same category of when Jesus told his followers not to worry. But here's what you need to know about James. 
James, who was the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, led the early church in Jerusalem for about 30 years. He was a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. And, I, and remember, that the church at that time uh, was getting a lot of Jewish converts, Jews who had been involved in Judaism, but they converted to Christianity. And that made the Jews mad. That made those who didn't convert upset because they kind of viewed this, this Christianity as kind of a knockoff religion, kind of a uh, Judaism 2.0 or something like that. So they didn't think a lot about the, these Jews that had converted to Christianity. In fact, uh, they viewed them as heretics. They didn't use that word. They used the word blasphemers. They, they called them blasphemers, but it referred to pretty much the same thing. Basically, the, Jew, the Jewish Jesus followers at that time were being persecuted. They were being shunned, ostracized, and viewed with contempt and disdain. So for 30 years, now think about this, for 30 years, James is in this constant struggle to try and help those Jews who had accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah and were being unfairly and unnecessarily persecuted for no other reason that they decide, than that they decided to follow Jesus. Now you talk about a hard life. Talk about losing hope. In other words, James was living in an environment of almost constant crisis. And he was responsible for trying to help the people in Jerusalem and his community find some kind of hope that they could cling on to, that they could hold on to through their seemingly hard, dark, and hopeless situation. So what did he tell them? Let's read it. In James chapter 1, here's what James told them, and it's what he tells us today by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to kind of flip this statement around that he made in James chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to take the, the last part and say it first and then put the first part last because I think it helps better explain what he's talking about. James 1, 2, when, very first word, when. Notice not if, when. In other words, trials, difficult times, difficult situations, circumstances, they're going to happen, they're inevitable. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin held the door open for all other sorts of sin, open sorrow, pain, disappointment, illness, death to invade our lives. So James says, when you meet trials of various kinds, and that, that word meet is an interesting word. Some translations say when you face, but it's an interesting word they use here because it was a word used in the Greek culture that describes someone being taken by surprise. In fact, in, in one piece of literature, it, 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 that word was used to describe when someone robbed someone. But it, it's kind of when you're in a situation where you're totally taken back. You had no idea that that was coming, right? It's like when you get the phone call from the doctor's office that you weren't expecting or you get that unexpected bill in the mail or things that kind of sucker punch you. You didn't see it coming. When you meet trials of various kinds, count it. Some translations say consider it. Adjust your thinking. Rethink, reframe it in a context of, here it is, all joy, my brothers and sisters. In other words, when you're caught off guard by a difficult trial, situation, or circumstance, you need to view that as a source of joy. And it's like, what? How in the world can you say something like that, James? How can you say something like that? I mean, you don't even know what I'm going through. And besides, who does that? I don't know anyone who does that. Do you know anyone who does that? I don't. How can you say something like that, James? He's about to tell us why he can say something like that. Let's read on in verse three. For you know, look at that. See that? There's something that we know. 
We know it. We just forgot. We lost sight of it because we're so consumed by what we were caught off guard with, that difficult situation, that, that circumstance. James says, when this happens, after that initial jolt, after hanging up the phone, after reading the letter, after getting off the phone with the doctor, here's what you should do. Pause, take a deep breath, and when you're able to see beyond your immediate circumstances, here's what you're going to remember. That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And what's a test? What's a test? A test is something that determines the authenticity or how real something is. In other words, James says, look, this thing that has caught you by surprise, this thing that has hit you like a sucker punch that you didn't see coming, is something that will test the authenticity of your faith or your trust and the confidence in God. Another way to word this would be to say, trials expose how legitimate our confidence and trust in God is. And no matter what we think about that statement, it really is true. It is true. I mean, this isn't something we sign up for. This isn't a decision we make. But think about it. Anytime we're faced with a trial or find ourselves in a hard place, a dark, seemingly hopeless situation, we do make some discoveries. We do make some discoveries. What do we discover? We discover how legitimate our faith is. We discover what we really believe. We discover something about ourselves. We discover something about our God. We discover something about our faith. We discover what we were pretending to believe, right? We discover what we were taught as a child in Sunday school but never really embraced as an adult. In that moment, when we're caught off guard by a trial without doing anything, the authenticity and genuineness of our faith is being tested. It just happens in spite of us. In other words, when circumstances begin to deteriorate, life gets hard, any artificial, counterfeit, selfish, what's in it for me faith deteriorates right along with it. You've seen this, I've seen this. It just happens. And here James tells us that there's actually joy to be found in discovering how real our faith is. He says there's actually joy in finding how legit your faith is. Because when we face trials, listen, when we go through times of darkness and seemingly hopelessness, we discover something about our faith that we could not have discovered any other way. Not only that, oftentimes we discover something about our husband or our wife or our children that we could not have discovered any other way. Again, you wouldn't sign up for it. You wouldn't wish it on anyone. And you certainly hate it while you're in the midst of it. But James says when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, we really do find out how legit our faith is. And James says, you know, there's actually joy in making that discovery. And I'll admit this view of trials stands in stark contrast to some of the things that we've heard preached and taught by people who do what I do. Specifically, I'm thinking about the false notion that faith is how we get God to do stuff for us. And I'm sorry, folks, but that's not faith. That's not what faith is. Faith isn't, listen, faith isn't a superpower. It's not a superpower. Faith is simply confidence that God has already done something. Faith is confidence in the fact that God has revealed himself to us in his word, the Bible, and that he will do everything he promised he would do. In other words, faith is simply our response to God and what he has declared about himself. It's not a way to get God to do something for us that he otherwise wasn't going to do. So James says, look, when you find yourself in the midst of a trial, and we've already determined that trials are unavoidable, they're going to happen. So we're all going to face them. 
James says, when you find yourself caught off guard by a trial or difficult circumstance, immediately you discover something about you. You discover something about your faith. And ultimately, you discover discover something about God who invites us to call him Heavenly Father. And James says, when this happens, try not to overreact. Because that's the tendency, right? That's the tendency when things like that happen. James says, when you find yourself in the midst of a trial, if you'll simply pause, step back, take a deep breath, regain your perspective, there's joy to be found as you discover something about you your faith, and your heavenly Father. So James says, whenever, not if ever, whenever you face trials of many kinds, consider it. Consider that process. Pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Why? Why should we do that, James? Because you know. See, this is something that you already know. You just allowed the trial to to get you sidetracked and distracted from what you already know. That the testing of your faith, and the testing of our faith actually does two things. The testing of our faith demonstrates how legitimate our faith is and it produces perseverance. In other words, trials enable us to hold up under pressure or stress or duress. Trials actually serve to strengthen our faith because trials cause us to engage or exercise our faith. You know, your your faith is kind of like a muscle. You you can strengthen it. Not, Not unlike working out strengthens your muscles. Look, I know this, you know this. I know you're not going to want to hear this, but there's only one way to strengthen your muscles, and that's working out. How many of you do any kind of a workout routine? Anyone do a workout routine? I do. I get up every morning. I run around the block, put the block back underneath the bed, and go back to bed. (laughs) Actually, Sue and I do have a a morning workout routine, but here's the thing. When it comes to exercising our faith muscles, this isn't an exercise that we choose. It chooses us. That's why it's important to find some support anytime this exercise chooses you, an exercise partner, as it were. That's why we offer growth groups that Kyle was talking about. You could view our growth groups as as exercise partners. Think about this. One study found that 95% of those who started an exercise program with friends completed the program compared to 76% completion rate for those who tackled the program alone. Not only that, the friend group was also 42% more likely to maintain the strength and, and they gained and the weight that they lost. If you're not in a growth group, I want to strongly encourage you to join one. If you'd like to know more about them, talk to Kyle, talk to me, we'll get you hooked up. Then James says something very interesting. He says, don't cut your workout short. Don't cut your workout. He worded it differently, but this is the basic idea that he was conveying. Here's how he worded it. In verse 4 of James 1, and let steadfastness, some translations say perseverance, have its full effect that you may be perfect. This is the better translation would be uh, complete. That you may be perfect, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, don't leave the gym halfway through your workout. That's what he's saying. Don't bail on the workout. Don't bail on the process. Why? Because God is doing something in you. And what he's doing in the midst of your trial is at the center of your life. Another way to understand this would be to say, the thing we want removed is the thing God has chosen to use. The thing that we're trying to pray away, which is perfectly understandable, but the tension in our lives 
is the epicenter of God's activity in our lives. And I can prove that statement to you. I can prove that last statement to you. Let me ask you a question. What are you praying about right now? What are you praying about right now? Exactly. This trial, this difficult, dark, discouraging time of darkness that you're going through right now that you wish God would remove has your undivided attention, doesn't it? Trials exercise our faith and they become the epicenter of what God is doing in our lives at that present time. So when life gets hard and you find yourself in the midst of a trial that you didn't choose, it chose you, James says, don't bail on the process. And more importantly, don't stop believing because there is an outcome. What's the outcome, Pastor? James tells us at the end of verse four, so that we can grow and mature spiritually and be made complete, not lacking anything. Another way to say this would be to say, let perseverance complete its work so that you will be made complete. When life gets hard, when trials come your way, don't overreact, pause, take a step back. Take a deep breath. Try to begin to reframe what you're going through. Regain your perspective, recognizing that there's joy to be found as you discover something about you, about your faith, and about your Heavenly Father. And whatever you do, whatever you do, don't bail on the process. Don't leave the gym early. Complete the workout so that your faith can grow and mature and you can have grown-up faith, not that selfish, what's-in-it-for-me faith. So that, that get God to do something for me faith. The only way to have grown-up faith is to face a trial and experience God's faithfulness in the midst of that trial. So what do we do? What do we do? In the meantime, what do we do? We ask God to use that situation until he either chooses to remove it or life chooses to remove it. And look, James isn't naive. He knows this, this isn't easy. He knows this is hard for us, right? He knows it's hard for us to imagine how anything could, good can come from what we're going through at that present time. He knows that. Because here's what we do, and maybe you never thought about this before. I didn't until this past couple of weeks when, when I was doing my own wrestling with the turn of events that rocked our community. But think about this. We turn to God when, th- when bad things happen. Think about it. We turn to God when bad things happen, believing that God could have kept them from happening in the first place. Yet, does it really matter what God does now since he didn't do what he could have done earlier? Or we ask God to comfort someone else, someone who's experienced something not unlike what Jessica and the Patton families have endured over the past couple of weeks. We ask the same God that we believe could have prevented the cause of their grief and need for comfort in the first place to comfort them now on this side of the tragedy. (laughs) Which begs the question, are we crazy? Are we naive? Many would argue yes on both accounts. In fact, this could be the very reason why some of you might walk away from your faith. But full disclosure here, just between you and me, don't let this get out. Just between you and me, I understand that. I really do. In fact, when Sue and I met with the family last Sunday to make plans for Aaron's funeral, we were were driving over and Sue said, what are you going to say? And I said, I don't know, honey. What do you say? 
So we got over there, and uh, this is what I told him. I said, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years, and I have never said this to anyone. But I said, you know, I hope it doesn't happen, but I would understand if you decided to walk away from your faith in God. I would hate it. It would grieve me as it would grieve God. And I think it would be the absolute worst thing that you could ever do. But I would understand. I really would. I really would. But here's what I know. I know that in spite of all the questions, I've always found some sense of comfort and hope by looking to God's word. And here's why. The Bible was written by by people, many of whom, experienced their own personal tragedies as well as unnecessary random struggles, persecution, suffering, unanswered prayers. Yet they still somehow continued to hold on to their faith as they persevered. Back in the first century, about 15 years after Christ's death and resurrection, something very tragic happened in the church, something that caused the Christians in the early church to scratch their heads and ponder the very same question and questions that many of us have asked since Aaron's passing. And the question is this, where are you, God? Where are you? Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, explains what happened. In Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, about that time, Herod, this, this, isn't, this isn't the Herod that killed all the babies around the, of the Christmas story. This isn't that. This was his grandson, I believe. Herod the third, I guess. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John. This isn't the same James that of the book we're reading, not the, brother, not the half-brother of Jesus. This is a different James. He killed James, who was a leader in the church, of John with a sword. What happened was King Herod went around, started gathering up Christians, torturing them, persecuting them, and sometimes killing them. As part of this campaign to torture, James finds out that as these people, the, 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 his, his henchmen are bringing in these people, and he finds out that he's got this James who's one of the leaders in the early church. So to make a statement, he says, uh, executing. So Herod has James executed, and the Jews loved it. They did. They thought that was great. Right. Look at this. In Acts 12, 3, three through 5, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, after killing James, Herod saw how much it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. So Peter was kept in prison. Now watch this, because here's where our faith connects with the faith of the Jesus followers in the early church. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See that? You see that? The Christians in Jerusalem, those who were being randomly, unnecessarily, and unfairly persecuted, tortured and killed, are asking God to deliver their leader now, Peter, who was like the Pope. In fact, Catholic Church still considers him the, the, the first Pope. But anyway, the Christians are now praying for Peter that God would deliver their leader. Now think about that. This was just days after God did not deliver James from the sword. 
Less than two weeks after James was killed, and you know they prayed for that, yet he's killed anyway. Two weeks later, Peter's arrested, but they're going to turn around and pray to the same God who didn't answer their prayer for James? What? Are they crazy? I mean, they're as crazy as we are. No, or rather, we're as crazy as they were. Actually, they weren't crazy at all. A few chapters later in Acts 17, we see this continued random and unfair persecution going on. Acts 17, verses 5 to 6. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, they didn't turn the world upside down. They were turning it right side up. You know, when it's been upside down for so long, when you're turned right side up, it seems upside down. The world was already upside down. Adam and Eve took care of that in the garden. Sin turned this world upside down. But this story should be an encouragement to us on two levels. First, because the people who were closest to the action, the people who knew Jesus personally, because again, this was only 15 years after the resurrection, so many of these people had actually walked and talked with Jesus personally. And I find comfort in the fact that many of those same people who knew Jesus personally were not immune from bad or tragic things happening. Second, in spite of believing that this would be an encouragement to us, because in spite of believing that God could have kept bad things from happening, (laughs) they still continued to look to him for comfort and help anyway, right after it happened. So are we crazy? Perhaps. But we're in good company. And please understand, they didn't continue trusting in and looking to God because it all made sense. And they understood what was going on. They didn't continue to look to and trust God and pray to God because they got all their questions answered. No, they continued looking to and trusting to God because the thing that made the least sense of all, talk about your seemingly random, unfair tragedy of all time, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that resulted in the hope that we can have today through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's how Peter put it. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Everyone say that with me. Living hope. One more time. Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to the degree that your faith, that my faith is anchored to that same historical event, our trust and our confidence in God will be able to sustain us through the random, inexplicable, where-are-you-God valleys that come our way. Not unlike the one that the, the Patton family and many of us are facing right now. So when you find yourself <laughs> praying to the same God who didn't come, for you, come, who didn't come through for you, when you prayed for him before, on the other side of the tragedy, the way that you wanted him to, the way you expected him to, the way that we just all knew he would, when it seems like the miracles are dried up and God's playing this cruel game of carrot on a string and anytime we get close, whoop, he yanks it away. Please know you're in good company. The same thing happened to Peter. The same thing happened to James. The same thing happened to John, Mary, Martha. The same people whose irrational 
In spite of where are you, God, faith laid the groundwork for the church as we know it today. They weren't exempt from situations like what we're facing today. But rather than allowing those things to drive them away from God, they approached them with the same mindset that I suggest that we do this morning. I've shared this before, but between our, between our oldest child, Chelsea, and our second child, Evan, Sue and I had a full-term, stillborn little girl. Boy, you talk about being caught off guard. I mean, who even knew they made baby caskets? You talk about being taken by, you talk about a sucker punch. And what made matters worse was, you know, they did an autopsy. Because they asked us, you want us to, just going forward, was there something, did something happen? You know, we just want to make sure, you know. Got the call from the coroner. That we, we don't know. We don't know. Are you kidding me? You talk about having some serious questions for God. So tell me, God, how does not allowing our little baby girl, who is due to be born any time, how does not allowing her to ever take her first breath benefit your kingdom? I want riddle me that one, God. That's what I want to know. It's the same question that I asked God earlier this week when I was preparing for Aaron's funeral. So tell me, God, how does allowing Aaron to wrestle for his life for two and a half weeks with miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, surgeon's words, not mine, the surgeon's calling these miracles, and yet the script for the ending of his life played out that way? God. How does that benefit your kingdom? I want to know that, God. You couldn't do one stinking more miracle. One more miracle. That's all he needed, God. One more miracle. You couldn't do that. That's what I want to know, God. James understands this tension. He does. So if life's hard for you right now and you're struggling, trying to find joy in the midst of your trial if the idea of discovering something about you, about your faith, and about God in the midst of a trial is hard to imagine for you, James understands that. That's why he made this next statement. He said, look, if, if you're flooded with questions, uncertainties, just don't understand how anything good could come from what you're going through, here's what you need to do. Verse 5, James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks the perspective you need to see your trial from God's perspective, if any of you fail to recognize how God is doing something in you, as you go through this, here's what you should do. Let him ask God who gives generously, generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, here's the problem. When I'm going through a tough time, I don't want wisdom. <laughs> I want relief. <laughs> I want answers. I want to know how I'm going to put this foot in front of that foot, and then tomorrow and the next day, and that's what I want, God. But the reason that we should ask for wisdom is because according to James, this is a prayer that God will answer every time. Pray for God to give you eyes to see your trial through his eyes because 
He does know the beginning from the end. He does see down the road. He knows about your tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next. So give me wisdom to see as you see God, because if we're able to see our situation, our trial, our circumstances through God's eyes, then we'll be more likely to do what James says and we'll be more likely to persevere through the trial. So piece this all together. And here's what James, the brother of Jesus, the pastor of the early church in Jerusalem says that we should do anytime we're caught off guard by a trial. And I'm going to switch to the NIV here. James 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay, why? Why, why, James? Why do we do this, James? Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The testing of our faith demonstrates the authenticity of our faith, and the testing of our faith produces perseverance. The testing of our faith reveals how legit our faith is, and ultimately we'll have a stronger faith if we'll persevere. So don't bail out early. Stay at the gym, keep working out, exercise that faith muscle, get plugged into one of our growth groups and begin working out with one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. Verse four, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But if you come to a place where you really just, you don't think you can continue on, where you can't persevere, where you just don't have it in you to put one foot in front of the other as you try to move on with your life. James says, look, I understand. I, I understand that. But don't give up. So question, have you ever met anyone like that? Have you ever met anyone that, that just either went through a lot of trials or maybe not even a lot of trials, just went through a very severe situation, dark, hard time in their life? One of those trials that, that you look at them and you think, man, I don't know what I would do if I was them. I wonder how many people have said that about Jessica. I think you know, Susan, I don't know what I would do if I were her. And you watch them navigate that trial with extraordinary faith and confidence. And they're facing something that you hope you never have to face. And yet their confidence in God never wavered. And it makes no sense to us. Because we're looking at that situation thinking, wow, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could respond that way. And I've known people like that. And I got to tell you, they are the most inspiring people. They are. They have so much substance to their life. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. The people who get a yes from God, they're very forgettable. But the people who get a no from God, but continue to look to, trust God, hold on to their faith, those are the people who inspire you. Those are the people you remember. I'm more inspired by the people who get a no from God and continue to walk with him than I am by the people who always seem to get a yes from God and live these somewhat sanitized, wrinkle-free lives. The reason those people are more inspiring is because they leave us with confidence and hope that there's a category of faith and a category of confidence that can endure almost anything. Those people whose, prayer, whose prayers go unanswered, but their confidence in God remains steadfast. They're inspiring. In James' world, honestly, things never really got much better for the church, for the Jewish, Jewish Jesus followers who are being persecuted, shunned, ostracized, sometimes killed for their faith. Things never really got better. But because they continue to look to God, because they continue to trust God, because they continue to pray, 
were able to do what we're doing this morning. In many regards, the success of the early church was tied to their willingness to persevere, to cling to hope, hope that came not as a result of understanding what was going on, hope that came not because they had all their questions answered, hope that came because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God will use whatever he chooses not to remove. And that's how we should pray anytime we're caught off guard by a trial that took us by surprise. That God would use whatever he chooses not to remove or that God will use our situation until life chooses to remove it. So here's how James wraps this all up. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, not the one who prays it away, obeys it away, or faiths it away but the one who perseveres because having stood the test, having discovered that their faith is real, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You know what the crown of life is? Me neither. But it sounds pretty cool. Here's the big idea. God values and uses persevering faith. Here's why. Persevering faith doesn't just leave its mark on us. Persevering faith leaves its mark on the world that we live in. Here's how Paul put it. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. In other words, going through dark, difficult times, if we'll persevere and cling on to the hope that we have through Christ, that actually prepares us to minister to others who might be experiencing their own hard time in life, their own darkness, their own despair. I mentioned our full-term stillborn little girl earlier while Sue was still in the hospital. The next day, after she delivered, Kasia, that's what we named her, our little baby girl, Kasia. Named her after one of Job's daughters. But while Sue was still in the hospital, we had some visitors from our church who came to visit us and comfort us. But what do you say? What do you say? I mean, people had good intentions. They just wanted to be there for us, and we understand that. But how do you comfort someone who's just lost a little baby girl? What do you say to that? Anyway, one of the couples that came to visit during that time really stood out to us, and and, and Sue will attest to this because we talked about it later. They didn't really say a lot while they were there. But um, there was just, when they left, it's like, man, it's like we had hope. It's like weird. It was just a really weird thing, but it's like something was different after they left. I didn't think a whole lot about that until a couple weeks later. I was talking with the pastor that we were working with at the time, and he was talking to me. He asked how Sue was doing, how I was doing. And I told him how even though we still had a lot of questions and a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, I said, you know, but this, this one couple from our church, you know, they, they came to visit. And I said, man, it was weird because we were really encouraged after they left. And he said, you know, he said, that couple, early in their marriage, She had stillborn twins at seven months. They they didn't tell us that. We didn't know that. 
And when he told me that, I thought of that statement by Paul in 2 Corinthians, and it made so much sense. The reason we felt so much comfort and hope when they came to visit us is because they had been through something very similar. God did end up, he blessed them with two more kids, great kids. In fact, our son Evan's named after their son. So God did bless them. But as I thought about that, I thought, you know, it might be small consolation, but God is even able to use those very hard times of our life to use us to minister to others. My point being, I don't know how this works. Somehow, some way, God will use the hard times of our life, the trials and darkness that we go through as a, as a, as a source of ministry to others. Perhaps not the same trial. God forbid that anyone have to go through what the Patton family has gone through over the last three weeks. But let's be honest, tragic loss is tragic loss, no matter how it's packaged. Loss is loss, right? So that's my prayer for the Patton family, that they would persevere and cling on to that hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that the mark that their persevering faith leaves on them can be left on the world later on down the road. We don't choose trials. Trials choose us. We don't choose the trials, but we do choose how we respond to the trials. That's why James invites us to lean in. Don't push away, lean in. Don't move away from God, lean in to God. Press in closer to God and allow the trial to purify and strengthen our faith because even though we might not get the answers we're looking for, we still have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can still call out to God. Does that make us crazy? Perhaps. But here's my take on this. If someone can predict their death and resurrection and pull it off, I think I'm going to follow that guy. I think I'm going to follow that guy. So I want to leave you with a prayer that I would like for you to begin praying if you find yourself in a hard place of life right now or you're even if you're not a praying person, if you would just maybe start praying this. Maybe you haven't prayed in a long time. Either way, I want, to, I want to invite you to begin praying this prayer. Heavenly Father, use this until you or life chooses to remove this. And if you can't imagine how God could possibly use the situation that you find yourself in right now, then consider doing what James suggested we do, which is to ask God for wisdom. Because according to James... That is a prayer that God will answer every time. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I do pray for everyone watching or listening now who's uh, maybe going through a hard time in life, who's hurting, can't seem to make sense of what's going on in their life. Help us to just be mindful of these instructions that you gave us in your word for how to navigate dark, seemingly hopeless situations and circumstances. And difficult as it might be, help us to pause, step back, take a deep breath, reframe whatever it is we're going through through the lens of the faith that you've given us, however great or small that that might be, and the promise of your word that says, if we'll ask for it, you'll give us wisdom. Not sometimes, not most of the time, but every time we ask for it. Recognizing that wisdom might not answer all our questions, but it will help us 
as we seek to navigate the difficult, dark, seemingly hopeless situation that caught us by surprise and has brought so much pain and sorrow to our life. Being mindful, being mindful that in spite of our hurt, our pain, our anger, our confusion, our questions, we can find hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, you're not in a right relationship with God, and by right relationship, I'm talking about having Jesus Christ as front and center of your life. I would be honored to help you get right with God. If you just pray the simple prayer with me, just say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm not where I should be in my relationship with you. And I'm wanting to make things right now. So help me, God. So help me, Lord, to begin living my life for you. By your Holy Spirit, come live inside of me, inside my heart, and help me to put you on the throne of my heart so that from this day forward, the choices, the decisions that I make would be honoring of you, of your word, and your kingdom. Forgive me for my sins, the things that I've done or haven't done that have separated me from you and your word and your plan for my life. In Jesus' name, amen.